Welcome to the Body Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Kiara. You can expect new episodes each Wednesday that are educational, inspiring, and honest surrounding various women's health topics, spirituality, and so much more. The Body Wisdom Podcast was brought to life by integrating the physical and emotional body to deepen one's healing journey. Thanks for being here and enjoy the show. guys. I'm really, really excited for today's episode on functional fertility. We have Lily Nichols here. Hi, Lily. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. Really good. I actually am loving this fall weather that we get. I don't even know where you live. Where do you live? I'm actually currently in the Midwest, but I move all over the place with my husband's career. So you never know where you're going to find me. (laughs) That's amazing. Is it like super cold there right now? No, it's just starting to get into fall weather. So um, we haven't even had like a, a hard freeze at night yet. So not too bad. That's good. Yeah, I mean, same here. Fall is my favorite season. So I'm actually loving like the cooler temperatures while it's still sunny out and not yet like frigid. So really enjoying that. But um, I'm excited for today's episode because I have read your book and I recommend it to like all of my clients. I've gifted it to clients. Um, it's such a powerful resource. And I can tell you're someone who definitely loves doing her research because you have how many citations in there? Like, I think I saw like almost a thousand, right? Yeah. I think, uh, I think the <laughs> final count was 934. Yeah. Wow. That's astounding and truly remarkable. I mean, it it definitely is, like I said, a powerful resource. And I highly recommend to everyone who is thinking about getting pregnant one day in the future. I mean, I read it and I have no plans of getting pregnant anytime soon. So I think it's just really good to have there as a guide because you don't have to read it necessarily from chapter to chapter. You can just bounce around and use it as, yeah, a guide. So um, I have to ask what, I guess before we get into the book, can we get to know you a little bit more? Like let the listeners just really understand like your background and where you came from and what led to the creation of Real Food for Pregnancy? Yeah. So my background professionally is as a registered dietitian and certified diabetes educator. And it's a little bit by chance that I ended up focusing on prenatal nutrition, actually. But um, once I started to understand the implications of maternal nutrition on both pregnancy outcomes, and also baby's health, not just at birth, but like their lifetime risk of disease can be significantly decreased if we like optimize mother's nutrition, optimize her blood sugar levels, and just keep her really well nourished during pregnancy. Um, that That's what really kept me uh, staying in this field. So I've worked in a many different capacities from like clinical practice, working under a perinatologist, to my own private practice, to um, being part of, you know, public policy decisions with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program. So that's specifically related to gestational diabetes and, well, any type of diabetes during pregnancy, to consulting on research projects um, and studies, to, of course, like, writing my own books. Um, And really, the, the reason that my books even came to be was that from all of these different perspectives, all these different areas that I worked in the prenatal space, things just kept uh, not lining up 100%. You know, it's like, okay, the guidelines say this, and you like present that information and counsel clients on that information in practice with the expectation that it's going to work. And then it doesn't work. Like, specifically on gestational diabetes, you know, as a a good little dietitian, I would follow the guidelines because of course there must be really solid evidence behind these guidelines. So here, like, here's this meal plan, you know, eat this, eat this amount of carbohydrates, eat this frequently and so on and so forth. And then oftentimes there, there are outcomes were not improved. Sometimes my client's blood sugar would get worse. About half of them ended up requiring insulin medication. I was like, that just doesn't, 
this just doesn't make sense um, as somebody who had already been a sort of real food eater and had dabbled into eating more low carb. I was like, it doesn't make sense that we're giving people with carbohydrate intolerance during pregnancy a high carbohydrate diet. Like it just doesn't make logical sense. Um, but I had to do a lot of digging to uncover the research on whether or not it would be safer to go low carb. And ultimately, that's kind of a long story, but that led to my work in um, writing Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, because ultimately, I uncovered that, in fact, it would be safe and actually safer for them to go lower carb um, in the context of a you know nutrient replete, nutrient dense diet. We had greatly improved outcomes. The percentage of clients who required medication or insulin was like cut in half. Um, and I just got so frustrated with hearing from other clinicians or having people referred to me in private practice who had been given this just terrible dietary advice that I know is going to fail them, um, that they didn't have access to better. And so that's, that's what led me to write Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Um, that was my first book. I wrote that in 2015. And then shortly after, I had so many people ask me, you know, what's a good resource on general prenatal nutrition? And it's like, well, you know, technically the blood sugar stuff is important to everybody, whether or not you have a diagnosed problem with it. So like, just read that book and like, kind of don't get too bogged down on all the blood sugar talk. Um, but it became clear that I was going to need to write a book on you know, prenatal nutrition as a whole, less focused on, <laughs> on blood sugar. Um, so Real Food for Pregnancy eventually um, came to be. And, uh, and that actually was really interesting. Any writing project you work on, if you're like me, like I write very much from the standpoint of like the research I'm reading. So I try not to have things just be like, well, my opinion is that like XYZ is good. So do it. Um, I usually come to my opinions and conclusions from what a what I see in practice and b what I also see reflected in the research. So of course, like I'm always going to have an opinion on things, but I'm not just pulling it out of thin air. And yeah. so as I like went down, you know, all the different like okay, the guidelines for this say this, and then you like look at the literature and you're like oh my God, like not only did they get the carbohydrate recommendations wrong, they got the protein recommendations wrong. They got the choline recommendations wrong. They got the vitamin B12 recommendations wrong. And it's just sort of like the list goes on and on and on. And that's why it ended up being um, such a longer book with so many more references than the gestational diabetes one. It's just like the rabbit holes just like kept getting deeper. And there, there was just, uh, yeah too many, too many topics to dive into and sort of debunk. Um, and anytime you're going against, you know, the standard guidelines, you you have to like back yourself with more data than somebody who's just repeating what the guidelines said, because the assumption is that the guidelines are evidence based. So if you're saying, wait a second, we have better evidence, you need to back that up and actually cite it all. <laughs> so that's why the process of uh, my writing process is so um, time consuming. It's just like you have to pour through thousands of studies. Not all of them are good quality studies worth citing. Um, and then, of course, the, the tedious nature of, you know, simplifying the information you've read in a study putting it into context that makes sense in the book. And then of course, citing everything. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. Like, how did you do it? Because sometimes even just reading like five articles is like overwhelming for me. And that could be done like in a whole month, months. Yeah. Worth well, I mean, I did it very slowly. Um, so Real Food for Pregnancy took me a lot longer to write than Real Food for Gestational Diabetes because I was a mom at that point. So I started writing Real Food for Pregnancy when my son was about 10 months old. So I was like just coming out of uh, <laughs> like the overwhelm of like postpartum yeah. and starting to get a little bit of sleep. Um, and so I just did it very slowly and it was just, you know, 
paragraph by paragraph. I had a very organized outline. It wasn't my first rodeo with writing a book, so that helped. Um, and I really spent like all of my free time working on it. Um, so every nap time I was working on it, uh, you know, I'd be like nursing and reading studies on my phone. <laughs> um, and then when I would get a 10 or 15 minute chunk of time to actually work, then like all the things that I've been reading for the last three days, it was like, oh, this is where I need to put them in. Let me see if I can hopefully find all those citations that I was reading. Right. So, yeah, it was a slow uh, it was a slow process. I'll <laughs> just Wow. So why do you think the guidelines were so wrong? Like what went wrong for them to be wrong about just about everything? Well, that's like the million dollar question, right? So the prenatal nutrition guidelines are a reflection of the general dietary guidelines. And the general dietary guidelines, which first came out in like the early 80s, for the US anyways, were based on a lot of shoddy evidence. I'll just put it that way. There's a lot of uh, assumptions made about the impact of food and different nutrients on health that led to those guidelines. And of course, there's a whole lot of uh, competing interests like in the food industry and whatnot um, that play into those as well. So really, the initial guidelines were very much from the guise of um, you know, the Ansel Keys study that suggested that saturated fat and cholesterol intake is responsible for heart disease. And so there was a big push to reduce saturated fat and cholesterol intake at pretty much all costs. Um, and this, unfortunately, over the decades has revealed itself to be a bit problematic because when you reduce your intake of those things, you increase your intake of a lot of other things that might not be desirable health-wise, yeah. especially refined carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. um, I was just speaking at a, at a event last week where I dug into the, the data a little more about like dietary intake in, in America 59% of calories in America are from what they call ultra processed foods nowadays. So these are foods that are typically made with ingredients that are like highly processed versions of the whole food. So like you take corn and you get like corn syrup and corn oil and you take soy and you get like soy protein and soy oil. <laughs> you take like all of these things that are just highly refined, the refined sugars, the refined carbohydrates, the refined vegetable oils, and then of course mix it with a bunch of flavors and chemicals and colorings and other non-food ingredients essentially. Um, and most of these things show up in like our breads and crackers and cereals and, you know, sweetened beverages and all sorts of stuff. And that's the majority of what Americans are eating nowadays. And if you think back to like, the 1980s and the 90s and these like snack wells cookies that are low fat but they're like absolutely packed to the gills with sugar um that hasn't turned out to be advantageous for our health so i think a lot of it is that the original guidelines are based on some assumptions that haven't actually proven to be true and have had adverse consequences by us really trying to almost eliminate saturated fat and cholesterol from our diets. Mm -hmm. um, and then the food industry responding by like highly processing all of these quote healthy, low fat foods as replacements. And so we've gone very far away from what humans ancestrally would have eaten. Even yeah. like, even if we just go back 50 years or a hundred years, like what we're eating is so much different than what we were eating back then. And in my opinion, we've uh, demonized a lot of the wrong things. So the prenatal guidelines are uh, just, they're an extrapolation of the original dietary guidelines. On top of that, it's really challenging to do studies in pregnant women directly because of obvious ethical concerns. Like, are you really gonna have two groups where one group of women is deprived of an essential nutrient and another group is not 
like, no, like the best you can do is like give the RDA for a nutrient and then give more of that nutrient to the other group. And we do have randomized controlled trials like that with choline, for example. Um, but you can't cause an overt deficiency in a nutrient ethically if you know that's going to harm her or harm her baby. So we've been really limited. A lot of the recommendations on pregnancy are based on data from adult men. And then they're extrapolated by like mathematical estimates for how much the fetus will require at different stages of pregnancy and maybe an accommodation for like maternal tissue require requirements, but it's, it's a guesstimate. A lot of them are a total guesstimate. And so as the years go on and we have new less invasive methods to assess nutrient requirements like protein, we've really, we have new ways of assessing protein and amino acid requirements. That's why we have some of this newer data suggesting like, Oh wait, we uh, we got that one wrong. The challenge is getting that research into a clinical guidelines, and then beyond that, um, well, clinical practice, and then beyond that, like government guidelines. Mm -hmm. That has a very long lag time. On average, it's seventeen years from new research coming out and then being incorporated into clinical practice. And oftentimes, it has to be done a little bit in clinical practice. For there to be enough of an uprising of clinicians pushing for change in said guidelines. So you're looking at, you know, at least two decade lag time. So I think it's just a matter of time that we do see some of these things revised. Um, but it's kind of a waiting game. And that's, that's really where since I've experienced working in, you know, sort of the bureaucratic structure of guideline setting from even a very small uh, area in this small program on diabetes and pregnancy for one state out of 50, right? There's so much red tape to change. It is so difficult to change even the smallest of recommendations because it has trickle down effects to like all of these other organizations and their guidelines. And you don't want to be stepping on these people's toes. And, you know, it's just, there's a lot of politics involved. Yeah. That's why I'm like, okay, I'm just going at this from the grassroots level. Let's like put the information into the hands of women and mothers and clinicians. And if you want to do it and you want to try it and it, you know, works great. And maybe from there, there will be sort of that uprising that will help with policy change. I'm, I'm just not entirely sure that we'll see it from like a top-down policy change coming out in, in the guidelines um, format, at least not in the U.S. There have been some countries that have put about change, like the Czech Republic revised their gestational diabetes nutrition guidelines following the information I put out in Real Food for gestational diabetes. They're a much smaller country, though. Um, but since then, their rates of requiring medication and insulin have been cut in half, just like you know, I observed in our clinical practice as well. Um, so you do see change in some places. I think it's having like the right people in the right positions and um, maybe not like a super bloated uh, bureaucratic structure. Maybe you can get more done if it's a smaller team of people making decisions. I don't know, but um, at least the information is out there if people want it. And um, if they don't, you know, they can also just Go ahead and follow the guidelines, whatever. It's your call. Exactly. Just putting the information out there and who I, I trust that it'll reach who it needs to reach. And even like I saw on, um, I think I was like scrolling on Facebook one day and I saw an article from like some big news media outlet talking about toxins that I feel like I've known about for a long period of time. I can't remember like which toxin it was, but it was like it could lead to some sort of cancer. And so I feel like these are things that maybe we've already known for a while. Um, and so I trust that maybe the same thing will happen like for nutritional guidelines. Like a lot of people maybe have known about this because of books like yours and then short, uh, um, what am I trying to say? Like um, surely, slowly, but surely, yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Slowly, but surely these big media outlets will maybe start sharing those things too. Um, and just getting the word out there. So I think that you're doing all that you can do. And yeah, there's, and you know, there's a lot of bias within the media as well. So a lot of times studies are not reported on that I think 
should be reported on. And then they pick some random one on like, <laughs> it's like they go back and forth every other month with eggs, like eggs cause heart disease and diabetes. And then like the next month, it's like two eggs a day is protective against diabetes and protective for your liver health. And then the next month it goes back to the next thing. It's it's almost like they just publish things based on the number of clicks it's going to get. It's like, okay, everybody's still confused about eggs. Yeah. So let's put out a confusing article on eggs. And then next month, when another article comes out on eggs, let's put out another confusing article on eggs and nobody knows what to think. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, it's it just sort of the world we live in. That's um, I, I've stopped Wait. reading any, any mainstream media articles reporting on nutrition are just not even worth reading. In my opinion, I just go straight to the research itself because usually it's uh, not reported or interpreted correctly. Um, or they're choosing a study that like doesn't actually reflect the entirety of evidence. It's just like one random cherry picked study not put into context of what all the other research is saying, which I don't think is uh, at the end of the day helpful for the general public. Yeah. Let's talk about fat because we're on the topic of, you mentioned Ansel Keys and I read the book, The Big Fat Surprise by, I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name, but it's Nina. Um, I think it's Nina Teicholtz. Nina Teicholtz, yes. Yeah. Not sure if I'm saying that correctly, but such a wonderful book. Um, I still have clients today who are like, my cholesterol is really high. Like, should I stop eating eggs yeah. <laughs> or should I like avoid bacon entirely? Like, what do I do? There is still so much confusion around fat. So on the topic of pregnancy, why are saturated fats in particular more favorable over maybe what's been um, recommended by the guidelines, like these polyunsaturated fats, um, these lower cholesterol fats, um, why are saturated fats more supportive during pregnancy? Well, there's a couple different reasons and it might be a challenge for me to (laughs) present this in a succinct way. So first of all, like fat and cholesterol are separate things. Cholesterol is like a lipoprotein um, or packaged in lipoproteins. But in animal sourced foods, you often have the cholesterol packaged right alongside uh, saturated fat. So they kind of go hand in hand in the context of animal foods. Um, All of your steroid hormones, which is your mainly your sex hormones, and this includes estrogen and progesterone, are made on a backbone of cholesterol. So you require cholesterol for sufficient hormone production. And there have been studies where you deprive women of sufficient fat, you put them on a really low fat, low cholesterol diet, and their hormone levels tank. Um, And yeah, we have some capacity to produce fats in our own bodies from other food sources, namely carbohydrates. Um, And yes, your liver has the capacity to produce cholesterol as well. But nonetheless, you you put women on a low fat diet and their hormones tank. Um, How do you think that's going to play out during pregnancy when your body is pumping out way more hormones than it normally does? I mean, already you pretty much induce anovulation, like women stop ovulating or stop ovulating regularly when they're on a low fat diet. So already their chances of getting pregnant are diminished. If you're not ovulating, your body knows that something is wrong and your body is essentially seeing that at least in the case of not eating enough food or enough fat, we don't have the resources to support a pregnancy. So we're not even going to allow you to get pregnant right now. Right? So you continue that during pregnancy you can see there's probably going to be some problems. On one hand, you reduce the fat intake too much and some other type of food has to come in to fill in the gaps. We can only eat so much protein. It's really hard for most people to eat more than 20 or maybe 25% of their diet from protein. It's just so filling. So the, the majority of the additional calories will be made up from carbohydrate intake. Now, This is a bit of a problem because when you eat a high carbohydrate diet, you have blood sugar issues. It's just like the two go hand in hand. Of all your macronutrients, carbs cause the most um, 
blood sugar spikes. Um, you might get like a teeny little bump from protein. Fat doesn't do a thing to your blood sugar. It's the carbs that are spiking it. Um, so A, that's going to be a problem. B, if you're eating super low fat, you're probably not going to be eating enough protein, certainly not the optimal amount of protein that we now know from the new research that came out in 2015, showing that, oops, our uh, late pregnancy protein requirements are 73% higher than we previously thought. Wow. If you're eating low fat, really truly eating low fat, you're probably also eating low protein because you're whole food sources of protein pretty much without fail come packaged with fat unless you're obsessively removing it, right? So like if you're taking the yolks out of your eggs and only eating the whites, yeah, you're getting pure protein, but you're not getting any of the choline and the B12 and all these other important nutrients that are in the yolks, right? So you're going to end up with a situation of like probably protein deficiency, probably an excessive amount of carbohydrates and blood sugar issues, probably some issues hitting your micronutrient targets because you're not eating a sufficient amount of protein, which is often in whole food form. That's what contains really the majority of the micronutrients of concern for pregnancy. So you just create problems already. Um, the other issue is like, if you're talking about types of fat, saturated versus unsaturated, those terms have to do with the chemical structure of fatty acids. So you have to go back to like organic chemistry, the, the class that any of us in the nutrition field or probably the medical field hate the most because it's really hard. Um, you have to go back to the chemical structure of the fats. And saturated fats are very stable. They do not oxidize easily. They do not go rancid easily. This means they're actually less inflammatory to your body because they don't get damaged. Whereas unsaturated fats, while there is a role for some of them, like you do need some omega-3s, for example, arguably we need some omega-6s. We don't really have to try to eat a lot of omega-6 because everybody's already eating a ton of them because we've replaced all of our traditional saturated fats like animal fats and butter and lard and tallow and whatnot with refined vegetable oils. And refined vegetable oils are excessively high in omega-6 fats. They interfere with omega-3 fat metabolism, so impair how much DHA gets to the fetal brain, which is important for brain and vision development. They essentially cause a lot of inflammation in the body, again, when eaten in excess. But in, when we're talking about a standard American diet these days, everybody is eating omega-6 fats in excess. You know, if you're like consuming any seed oils whatsoever, which we all are, whether we like it or not, you're getting an excessive amount. We're eating like at least 20 times more omega-6 oils than we were 100 years ago because they just were not a major part of our diet. If you're eating animal foods, you get plenty of fat with an animal. There's no need to like... Supplement. Cre there's, yeah, there's no need for you to try to get oil out of a kernel of corn or out of a soybean like that process cannot be done without like very intensive industrialized machinery and like a multi-step process of extracting it with chemicals deodorizing it bleaching it so on and so forth it's not a natural thing um so we have this huge imbalance um at least compared to ancestrally in our intake of types of fat. And um, it's hard for people to like wrap their mind around because a lot of the research that we like base our conclusions about on fat are like either have a ton of confounding variables. So it's like an epidemiological study looking at like a large population over a period of time and how likely they are to get certain adverse health outcomes or um, they're like animal studies where you take rats who are like biologically very different from humans, arguably thrive on lots of seeds, <laughs> um, thrive on way more plant foods than, uh, than humans. And then you give them like a rat chow that's like, you know, super high in saturated fat. And then you observe these adverse outcomes. It's like, well, yeah, it's not a species appropriate diet. It's not fat coming from whole food sources. You're essentially giving these rats like processed foods 
Or when you look at the data where they like clinically put people on a diet that has more saturated fat from natural sources, like that has more meat or full fat dairy or dark chocolate, which naturally are high in saturated fat, you don't see these adverse outcomes on cardiovascular health because it's fat in the form that our bodies are used to coming in contact with in real food. It's not an ultra processed food that's like super high in like sugar and white flour and all sorts of junk and also just so happens to be high in saturated fat. That creates like a different metabolic situation um, in your body. So there's just a lot to tease out with the topic. Um, And for the most part, I tend to just focus on the fact that if you're really going to be trying to get your nutrients from real whole foods, and you're going to have to eat saturated fat because a lot of your foods that are rich in saturated fat naturally are really rich in a lot of the micronutrients you require for pregnancy. So you got like your organ meats, you have red meat, you have um, even fish and seafood as saturated fat, your egg yolks have saturated fat, full fat dairy has saturated fat, coconut oil has saturated fat. I mean, you're going to get a little saturated fat in like just about everything, but those ones are more concentrated than um, other food sources. And you're going to be hard pressed to find somebody who can meet their, you know, vitamin B12 requirements and choline requirements and vitamin A requirements from the form your body can utilize known as retinol when you're eating a diet that's low in saturated fat. It's just incompatible. Mm -hmm. Can we touch on like what unsaturated fats do to the body, I guess, mostly pertaining to blood sugar, because diabetes is something that is one of your primary focuses. Um, So what is the process that happens, I guess, like the inflammatory process that could happen with the impact that um, unsaturated fats have on blood sugar? So, you know, it depends on the type of unsaturated fat you're talking about, because I don't want to throw them all under the bus. Like we do need some. And generally, you know, the research on monounsaturated fats, those are the ones that have just only one single double bond, much, much less susceptible to oxidation. Generally, the research is positive on monounsaturated fats. And with omega-3 fats, again, in the context of like a whole foods diet, generally positive with getting, you know, some omega-3 fats in the, in the diet. It's when we have this extreme imbalance of a ton of omega-6 polyunsaturated fats coming in that we start to have issues. So the problem, like I said, unsaturated fats have potential places for oxidation to occur or damage, in other words. With a monounsaturated fat, there's literally one double bond, one place where that damage can occur. With polyunsaturated fats, poly meaning many, there's many double bonds on that fatty acid molecule, many different places where they can become oxidized and damaged. There's a range of different names given to this process, but I think one of the more one of the more compelling ones um, is they call it lipid oxidation products or LOPs. So as these fats become oxidized or damaged, they don't behave in the body as they did before they were damaged um, or like any other undamaged fat. And this can occur, by the way, just from being stored in a clear plastic bottle for a long period of time and being exposed to light. I mean, they're very delicate it definitely occurs during cooking and even more so when your frying oil has been reused over and over and over again, as it is in the food industry or in any restaurant fast food chain. Um, You create more and more of these lipid oxidation end products. So it's like a ping pong ball, like going around your body just damaging everything that it touches. And then your body has to use its own defenses and antioxidants and vitamin E to try to clean up the damage that has been done. Whereas saturated fats just don't do this. They're not damaged by heat or light or exposure to air. They're very stable. So like you can fry something in coconut oil 
and reuse that frying oil many, 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 many times. And it's virtually unchanged. Whereas you fry in vegetable oil, even the first time you have a ton of lipid oxidation products, and then you reuse that three, four, five, seven, four dozen times, you're going to have increasing amounts of these um, compounds in your system. So if people want to read on this, I really recommend looking up lipid oxidation products. There's a lot of research on it. Um, in terms of like blood sugar issues, you know, anything that's inflammatory or damaging your like endothelium, like the lining of your blood vessels is going to cause problems with your blood sugar management as well. Some of these fats can kind of like just mess up the receptor sites for insulin. So your body becomes more insulin resistant, has trouble bringing your blood sugar down into a normal range. So it's not that the fats are directly elevating your blood sugar, it's that they're impairing your uh, blood sugar metabolism, so to speak. Got it. That makes sense. So fats obviously aren't the only macronutrient that you touch on in your book. <laughs> and you kind of already briefly mentioned um, protein, carbohydrates, and, you know, so you don't necessarily recommend like a, a zero carb diet. That's not what you recommend at all whatsoever. Correct. But it's everything in relation to the carbohydrates, like all on one plate, your fats, your carbs, your protein, right? Yes. It's about balance more than um, total exclusion yeah. of anything. And mm. I think we're seeing that catch on a little more in the, uh, at least from what I'm seeing these days, like on social media, I see more and more people sort of moving back towards sort of the middle ground of macronutrient balance also acknowledging that everybody has a different different nutrient requirements and especially for carbohydrates people have very different carbohydrate tolerances um so you have some people that do well you know fairly low carb and you have other people who are better off kind of more in the moderate range so it's kind of about responding to what your body is telling you too where are your blood sugar levels at how's your energy levels what's your nutrient intake like what are your goals, you know, health-wise prior to and during pregnancy? What are your markers of insulin resistance telling you? All of those things play a role in in sort of figuring out your sweet spot with um, macronutrients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, I think we're heading in the right direction with creating more balance on our plates. But then every once in a while, I will see a video of someone just eating egg whites, and I'm like, oh. So sometimes I remind myself, like, I am in my bubble, and there's still a lot of people who are eliminating macro groups, and I'm like, or just food, just a certain yeah. food, because they think they're bad, and I just remember being there, and it makes me so sad to think about all of the egg yolks I used to throw away. Yes. <laughs> I used to be there, for sure. Um, okay, so let's talk about gestational diabetes, um, just taking it back to the bare bones, like overview of it. What is gestational diabetes for those who don't know? Yeah. So gestational diabetes is elevated blood sugar during pregnancy at its simplest definition. Yeah. <laughs> um, however, it, it can, you can get into more specifics on defining it. So it could be blood sugar issues that first developed during pregnancy, or it could be blood sugar issues that were pre-existing and they've just first been recognized during pregnancy because we don't do a great job of like preventatively screening the whole population for blood sugar issues. And then in pregnancy, all of a sudden they do. Um, so we catch a lot of, you know, pre-diabetes, um, but we call it gestational because that's when we first caught it as an issue. Um, and then finally, another definition, which I think is helpful, is carbohydrate intolerance during pregnancy, which alludes to the fact that your body is unable to process large quantities of carbohydrates eaten at one sitting without experiencing elevated blood sugar. So everyone's carbohydrate tolerance is different. If you find, you know, you're really not able to tolerate much carbohydrates at all without your blood sugar spiking super high, arguably that probably classifies you in, in the gestational diabetes or at least borderline gestational diabetes category. However, the 
actual diagnosis of it, like naming it or not naming it. I passed the test. I didn't pass the test. It doesn't actually really matter whether you have an official diagnosis or not, like blood sugar, the issues caused by elevated blood sugar over a consistent period of time in pregnancy happens regardless of a diagnosis or not. So it's like important for all of us to have it um, at least in the back of our mind uh, in, in pregnancy and, and eat in a way, live our lives in a way that, that maintains blood sugar balance as much as possible. You know, an occasional spike is not a big deal, but it's when it's like day in, day out, like three, four or five times a day that we start to have problems. What are the impacts on the fetus um, with gestational diabetes? Or I guess if it, it if it goes unaddressed and someone doesn't change their diet and their lifestyle and like what is done for gestational diabetes once they do get that diagnosis? Yeah, and it's good you brought up the like clarifying statement of, you know, unmanaged, unmitigated high blood sugar, because I think there's a lot of fear. Um around the diagnosis and a lot of a lot of providers I think try to like scare women into compliance by like all of these bad things will happen you know gestational diabetes means xyz bad thing will happen in your pregnancy instead of no blood sugar is on a spectrum we have mild cases we have more severe cases of gestational diabetes it has more to do with how well your managing your blood sugar on a day-to-day basis, not, not even, you know, outside of even the diagnosis itself. So in the context of it not being well-managed, um, there's a, a number of issues can arise, like from very early in pregnancy, elevated blood sugar is linked to higher risk of certain congenital malformations, like congenital heart defects, for example, neural tube defects. Most of those happen in cases of, uh, undiagnosed diabetes, not like super mild gestational diabetes, although there is some research showing there can be elevated risk, even at fairly low thresholds of, of um, outside of the normal range. In later pregnancy, we tend to see issues with baby's growth. So typically they tend to grow larger than expected um, and not because they're robustly healthy, but because they're storing an excessive amount of body fat. So once babies get to the point in gestation where their pancreas is now functional, they start to produce additional insulin to account for the elevated blood sugar that they're encountering from their mother's circulation. Maternal insulin doesn't cross the placenta, but blood sugar does. So that means baby's pancreas has to pick up the slack And you have high blood sugar, high insulin levels, you have greater amount of fat stored. Um, So they're essentially, you know, born with, with greater adiposity um, than, than would be expected. And they're also born uh, insulin resistant as well. So over the, over the long term, like their whole life, we see anywhere from a six to 19 fold increased risk of that child developing type two diabetes or obesity by the time they're 13. If maternal blood sugar was not well controlled in pregnancy, I always give that because it's like, I don't want to be the doom and gloom bringer. I want to be the like encouraging, you know, blood sugar management as much as possible because your, your baby doesn't have to be, you know, another statistic. But when we look at like the, massively rising rates of childhood obesity and type 2 diabetes. This does actually, at least on, on, on some level, circle back to maternal metabolism in pregnancy. And just remember, we've had these dietary guidelines in place that are super high carb, high in these omega-6 fats for decades. Um, now, like, what two generations and these things can be passed down generation after generation. So if you're exposed to gestational diabetes in pregnancy, that affects the development of your pancreas that affects your insulin regulation and blood sugar regulation for the rest of your life. If you become pregnant, you're more likely to have blood sugar issues. So it just continues to be passed on. Um, There can also be some like immediate effects with birth, you know, so 
There can be issues with um, lung development. There can be issues with hypoglycemia after birth. And this confuses people because they're like, well, wouldn't it be high blood sugar, not low blood sugar at birth? And the issue is that in utero, the baby has adapted to high blood sugar. And so they produce high amounts of insulin. Once they're born and you cut the cord, you've just cut their supply of sugar, but their insulin production is matched to expect consistent and high levels of sugar. So they crash because they were hyperinsulinemic. And this can actually be life-threatening. In an ideal world, we would better manage blood sugar so you're not having the frequent highs or consistent highs. So the baby's insulin is not high. Babies are actually meant to be born fat adapted. They're born in ketosis and they stay in ketosis for actually a pretty long period of time. Um, But if they're fat adapted and can run on ketones, they don't crash when they're born. It's when they're sugar adapted and only sugar adapted because that's the fuel source that they're used to encountering in utero that they can easily go hypoglycemic um, soon after birth. So yeah, there's a lot to consider. And the good news is that uh, all of these risks and um, issues are not fate or destiny. And there's so much you can do for blood sugar management and pregnancy to prevent these things from happening. We're really talking like worst case scenario, blood sugar issues either like weren't identified or weren't addressed. Um, and then, yeah, you can have some, some fallout from that. Yeah. I love how you said like eat in a way and live in a way that is going to support your blood sugar. And cause a lot of people that I have spoken to in the past, like maybe their sister had just gestational diabetes or maybe it was preeclampsia. Um, a lot of people feel these things just happen spontaneously and are not really sure like why, and that they don't know that there are things that could have been done and that's not to shame or blame anyone for the decisions they've made, but hopefully it, it can spark like a light bulb. Yeah. And there's some situations where they do seemingly come out of nowhere. Like not everything's within our control. Pregnancy definitely teaches you that I'm really about helping women stack the deck in their favor. Like here's ways that we could potentially reduce your risk of this, or if it does occur, reduce the severity or the necessity to manage it with medication. Like everybody when they're pregnant wants to, if they can manage things with like food and lifestyle. Right. So I'm just like putting that information um, in their hands, but there can of course be situations where there are risk factors that are not within your control. It's not within your control if like type 2 diabetes runs super strong in your family. It's not within your control if your mom had uncontrolled gestational diabetes with you. Um, Some of these things are like, we're not always dealt the best hand of cards. um, and, And we live with some of these consequences that can go back, you know, several generations in in our family line, just from, you know, epigenetic influences of all of these lifestyle factors on the expression of our genes and our risk factors. We still do, you know, have things we can do to to help, hopefully, prevent that, um, give you a better hand of cards, maybe swap out some of the crappy cards with some good ones ahead of time, even mid-pregnancy, sometimes we can help. Even if you get a diagnosis of gestational diabetes or preeclampsia, there's still so much we can do um, nutritionally and lifestyle-wise that can hopefully make it easier. I was just um, talking to one woman who said in her first pregnancy, she like gained a ton of weight, was so swollen, was so uncomfortable, um, had preeclampsia. And then her second pregnancy, which was actually a twin pregnancy, she was following real food for pregnancy at that point. She didn't have any swelling. She said she gained less weight during her twin pregnancy than she did her singleton pregnancy, which is pretty crazy. Also crazy that even in a second pregnancy, because sometimes in your second pregnancy, you gain a little bit more. um, Had, you know, healthy twins at term. Yeah, no swelling, no preeclampsia, healthy babies. She was like, the pregnancy was so much smoother than the first round. And that was with twins. So you never know. Like, it can seem like everything's stacked against you. 
Um, and it really comes down to like, what are you doing day in and day out? How are you feeling? How are you responding to like your body's response to food? Like how long are things keeping you full? How energized are you? How do you feel when you have like eggs and vegetables for breakfast versus, you know, cereal, like, and just responding to those cues and eating in alignment with really your well-being on a day-to-day basis, that stuff adds up over the months and and years. So yeah, it's about, you know, taking proactive action and, and trying not to get too bogged down with all the bad news. It's like, I feel like I have to talk about the bad news and the consequences of not doing things mm. um, to get people's attention. And really, that's what a lot of the research is. It's like, if you're deficient in this, all these bad things happen. And this is why it's important to not be deficient in the thing. Like, sometimes we have to talk about the negatives to talk about the positives, but I really try to flip it to, um, flip it to the positive. Yeah, no. And that's very evident in your book for sure. Like here's the information and it's important to know because otherwise there wouldn't be any motivation to follow through with what you're recommending. There has to be, they, I feel like it always needs to make sense for my clients. Like here's why so that you can actually continue through with what I'm telling you to do. Right. So yeah, we, we do need to cover the negative, but like you said, flip it into a positive. Um, you mentioned weight gain and I work with a lot of women who may become pregnant while we're working together. And they have a lot of fear surrounding weight gain because maybe they came to me as, you know, weight gain with one of their concerns. So what is the general, is there a general recommendation for like how much weight you should gain in one pregnancy? And I think you just briefly mentioned too, that you do gain more slightly with your second pregnancy. You might, it really depends. Yeah. So many things depend that, you know, I, I hear from some women that their second or third pregnancy, sometimes they're on their like sixth, seventh, eighth pregnancy, you know, it's like, oh, this pregnancy was so much better than my previous ones um, comparatively. And like for, I think it depends. I mean, there's so many factors, right? And, And again, not all of them are in your control, but just as a personal anecdote, I was pretty healthy in my first pregnancy And I mean, I think I was pretty healthy in my second pregnancy too, but just the fact that you're like running around after a toddler when you're pregnant again is so, um, so exhausting. Um, And your body does have some sort of memory of expanding from the first pregnancy. Um, I wouldn't say again, like a lot more. It's just like physically my body grew so much faster because it's like oh yeah this muscle is stretched before this skin is stretched before we know how to do this you know (laughs) not necessarily a bad thing so I I think it just depends on um you know how the previous pregnancy went uh, whether or not that'll be true for somebody um yeah so with weight gain I mean there's many different ways of looking at how much weight is optimal to gain in pregnancy. I do have a blog post on this um, that you could link out to if you want to for people who want sort of the specifics. But generally, the like official guidelines are based on a person's pre-pregnancy BMI. And then there's just from lots and lots and lots of data, there are expected ranges of weight gain that make sense for that body size. Is BMI the perfect measure of health? No, absolutely not. But generally speaking, like the more you weigh going into pregnancy, the less you need to gain to have sufficient nutrient transfer to your baby. Okay. Um, whereas somebody who enters pregnancy underweight, they're probably going to need to gain more, sometimes three times more than somebody whose BMI is like over 40. Um, because they're, they don't have the tissue stores in their body to support it. So you're not only growing baby, you're growing, your uterus is growing, you're growing the placenta, you have amniotic fluid, your circulatory system adapts to like 50% more fluids, your skin stretches, your muscles change, your joints change, your breasts change. So many things change, um, that there is naturally and somebody who's at like a healthy or a low weight, like there's naturally going to be a fair amount of weight gain. And for somebody in the quote, healthy BMI, um, typically a weight gain of about 25 to 35 pounds is expected during pregnancy. 
there are always going to be people who are outliers slightly below, slightly above that. That's totally fine. It's really um, waking. Waking is often not always a reflection of like how well nourished you are, right? So I tend not to focus a ton on the numbers and focus more on the behaviors that contribute to gaining weight in a healthy range for pregnancy. And most of that really comes down to some of these macronutrient things that we were talking about previously. If you eat a sufficient amount of protein, which again is higher than we previously thought, I also have a blog post on this for people who don't have my book, um, your appetite in your satiety levels are going to be much better regulated and you'll be much less likely to have insane cravings, especially for junk foods and stuff um, that would contribute to you probably gaining a lot of weight, right? So hit your protein goals, very important. Think about carb quality. So I'm not for no carb, although some people will do that <laughs> for, for better, for worse. Um, there's all sorts of, you know, uh, extremes and opinions on nutrition out there. But um, for the most part, I focus on carb quality. So displacing your sugars and your white flour products and white rice products with higher quality carbohydrates that have more micronutrients in them, that have more fiber in them. Um, that also plays a big role in supporting a healthy amount of weight gain. There has been research showing that for women who eat a high glycemic diet, so lots of sugar, lots of refined carbohydrates, lots of white flour products, they tend to gain almost twice as much weight during pregnancy as the women who eat a low glycemic index diet. So if you can, this is where the blood sugar stuff comes into play for everybody, right? Because it affects everything. That's going to affect your weight gain. It's going to affect your blood pressure. It's going to affect your propensity for swelling. Um, a lot of this comes down to like macronutrient balance, sufficient protein, not eating a lot of junk carbohydrates. Um, so I don't know that you really need to worry so much about the number. Yeah. Um, of weight gain. However, I do think it's helpful for people to sometimes have like a general guesstimate um, to see, like, have an idea of how much they should gain. And this comes from, I hate saying should gain, how much might be optimal to gain. Um, and that's because sometimes you have people who are like very, um, very concerned about gaining any weight at all. And I think it's helpful to see like, actually, no, you do benefit from gaining this amount. And this is like what it looks like over the course of the pregnancy, because your body is changing so rapidly, it can feel very um, unnerving and like out of sorts where it really feels like your body is not in your control. And it's like, Oh my God, like my belly is like so big. Like, how is this happening? Like, is this normal? Am I gaining too much? Am I not? Um, I think it's helpful to sometimes have like a check-in point yeah. to see. Um, and then on the flip side, I have found when working with clients who are at BMIs of like greater than 40 or greater than 50, Sometimes naturally when they eat more real food, they just don't gain quite as much weight and then they're concerned they're not gaining enough. And when we go, well, actually the research for BMI at this level or above says you might benefit from no weight gain or even weight loss, then they're like, oh, I'm so relieved because I feel like I'm eating plenty of food. I'm not hungry. It's just like, it's just sort of, it's like the excess fat is just like melting off of me. And it's like, well, yeah, now you have like the, you know, higher metabolism of pregnancy, like working in your favor, coupled with eating more nutrient dense foods, like sometimes you do see weight loss. And that's not necessarily concerning in the context of somebody who has a lot of um, fat stores already. So it really like, it really needs to be personalized to the client. I cannot emphasize that enough. Um, and that article on weight gain does, does go into some of that. Okay. There's also a lot of general advice, um, which like kind of what you were saying previously about like, you'll hear one thing and hear another that completely contradict one another. Um, but what I've seen is that you need to be eating way more because now you're eating for two. Um, is that necessarily true? Is there some nuance to that? And 
I think you kind of briefly mentioned also um, quality and kind of swapping yep. some things. And that's kind of more important than the whole like eating for two kind of thing. Yeah. So the eating for two concept, I think, is misrepresented um, because most people interpret that as eating double the amount of food. Yeah. And <laughs> The, the, the baby really doesn't need double the amount of calories. I mean, at, at most, you might need an extra 500 calories by the end of your pregnancy. But you also have to factor in that a lot of women are not uh, expending as much energy f- physically, like they're not as physically active. And so there's actually some estimates that have said the increase in caloric requirements can be as low as 70 extra calories per day. So it's like, you know, it's maybe an extra snack or maybe, you know, a small meal. For the most part, you can trust that your hunger and fullness cues will tell you. Like if you're hungry, absolutely eat. You should never deny those cues. You don't have to eat double. What you do want to be focusing on is, yes, what you said, quality. So there are a lot of micronutrient requirements that increase during pregnancy. So I would be focused more on eating as much nutrient-dense food as possible, like displacing the white flour products and sugar stuff. That's really the main focus of things you want to displace with real food. So can you get like an extra serving of protein in there? Do you need an extra egg with your breakfast? Do you need to add an extra serving of protein or vegetables or avocado or something to your salad or your sandwich at lunch. Um, We need to be focusing on quality more than just like, you don't really need to try to eat extra calories. Like if you're actually listening to your body, you will naturally more. Um, I think one thing that is lost in all of this is there's like this sort of, I think they try to generalize the advice so much that it's like, okay, at this stage in pregnancy, you need this many more calories. It's not an exact science whatsoever. Uh, You might have weeks where it's like baby seems to go through a growth spurt or something where you're just like unreasonably hungry. And like, if you're unreasonably hungry, well, first check in with yourself to make sure you're getting enough protein. But You might be, and you might just be unreasonably hungry and need a lot of food during those weeks. And that's okay. Like, do it, you know? And then there might be other weeks where you're not eating very much. I had a friend of mine who's pregnant right now check in with me recently, like, hey, I'm like, you know, about halfway through and I'm just not that hungry. I'm just like, I kind of have to like force myself to eat. And I'm like, well, what's your weight gain like? Like, how are your energy levels? Like, I feel fine. I don't know. My weight gain seems fine. I just, I'm like worried that I don't want to eat. It's like, you know what? Just, it's okay to just roll with the punches. Like right now you're not super hungry. That's okay. In a couple weeks, it's probably going to change. Unless you're like really, truly physically unable to eat or keep any food or liquids down, like you have hyperemesis gravidarum or something, then like, yeah, that's a sign you want to seek some medical attention. But if it's just a couple days where you're not as hungry, it's going to be okay. Like our bodies have adapted to maintain pregnancies despite serious food shortages and famine and whatnot. If you're not totally hungry for an entire full meal every single day, three times a day, it's fine. Like, it's okay. You're, you're listening to the the cues that your body is, is giving you. Right. Um, yeah. So the eating for two thing needs to be in context, certainly. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for answering all of my questions, Lily. I really appreciate it. Um, I think we had a good conversation today. I'll be sure to link um, the blog post that you mentioned on weight gain and protein for those who don't have your book. I'll also link your books um, and your website and your Instagram handle. Um, Is there anything that I'm missing for anyone to? Uh, I think you've pretty much got it all. Um, (laughs) You know, on my website, I do have like a freebies tab. You can click on that. You can get the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy for free if you just want to have like a an intro into the topic, what I actually cover from the book, um, get an idea for my writing style. A lot of people really like that because in that download, I have uh, a meal plan comparison between like conventional prenatal nutrition advice and a meal plan of mine and then like the nutrient, the micronutrient difference. So it puts it more into context, like 
yes, I am arguing for all of these things, but like, here's the information. Here's the numbers in black and white. Like you can see that pretty much except one vitamin where we come out the same, the real food plan is higher in all of the micronutrients. <laughs> so um, you can see for yourself why, why I'm arguing so much for um, nutrient density. I don't think I've even downloaded that. So I'm going to head to your website and do that. Well, uh, if you have the book, it's, you know, it's chapter one from the book. So you, oh, you already okay. have it handy. Um, but for people who, you know, are yeah. sure on the book, you can download it too, if you really want to. I mean, totally up to you. <laughs> but <laughs> well, it'll be a repeat of what you already yeah. read. Well, I definitely recommend the book, guys. I mean, it is it is an easy read, um, easily digestible read, because you break it down from all of the, the research articles that you read and papers. You just break it down in such an easy to read way. So I think if anyone wants to nerd out while also receiving good advice, um, I think it's a good book. Oh, so <laughs> I will link that, but thank you again for coming on Lily. I really appreciate it. And until next time, guys. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. If the episode resonated with you, feel free to share it with a friend and give the podcast a five-star review and rating as this allows us to grow and continue having incredible guests on the show. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time.